Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Let's open the file on Tina and the tree. Jen, tell us all about it. So, Julia, as always, we start with the facts. And the facts were that Tina was uh, a fourth grade student who had an IEP. Her IEP eligibility category was autism. And Tina was, uh, just to give a little bit more detail, a student who uh, many would refer to as a student with, quote unquote, high functioning autism. I'd like to take a minute, Julie, to talk about that term. Right. So the term high functioning, right, has the potential to be misunderstood. And so we don't want you as parents or as um, educational teams to let that label, so to speak, derail you from planning appropriate for a student. So high functioning is typically referred to students on the autism spectrum who have a higher intelligence and they are verbal. But this doesn't always mean that they have all their skills intact intact, Sorry, when it comes to socially, emotionally, behaviorally, and or adaptively. And so that's all that we want you to keep in mind. And Julie, it's such an important point because specific to Tina, that was exactly what happened. Because she was higher functioning, quote unquote, verbally, um, and because she had some pretty strong academic skills, the team made the assumption, and, and this is something you and I face regularly, mm-hmm. that she didn't require as much support as a student who might not be verbal, who might not have her level of intelligence. And unfortunately, what her parents were concerned about was that she had significantly low functioning socially and um, coping skills were poor. And so by fourth grade, they were seeing a student, you know, their child who had no friendships. And while on statewide testing, she could perform quite well because she was quite bright, um, is quite bright, but I haven't thankfully had to be involved in a while, uh, that she was perfectly fine to function in her mainstream educational environment. And in fact, she had no friendships. Um, She couldn't carry on any conversations. And so the family actually came to you first, Julie. That is correct. And let me just really quickly say a a, a word about the term low functioning, which can also incite some, um, let's just say, um, debate. And so what I want you to know about the term low functioning is that people who are classified that way can actually have lots of skills in, in some very significant areas. And so we don't want that term to derail you either for planning for a student who has an autism spectrum disorder. Yes, Jen, Right. they came to me first and I was successful in um, getting a paraprofessional and let's talk about what a paraprofessional is, depending on where you live, a para can be referred to as an aide, a tutor, uh, et cetera, but it generally refers to an adult who is there to support a student in some way. It could be for safety and in the case of Tina, It was to facilitate social communication, social skills, um, and and, and to improve her social competencies 
while she was at recess, at lunch, and at specials. Because these are the times when there's not so much structure. It's more of a free-for-all socially. And where Tina was not being successful and where Tina's parents were concerned. And, you know, Julie, with students like Tina, and it doesn't, it's not specific to autism, it's, it's actually, in my experience across the board, when those students have an area of real strength, but then they struggle in this, in one particular, what uh, sometimes referred to as soft skills, you know, things like social skills, which we know are so essential, and in fact, should be referred to as hard skills. Um, and they're very hard to teach, and they're very hard to obtain, and they're essential for success in life. And so I have a hard time getting those students, one-to-one paraprofessionals, um, as part of their IEP. Very uh, regularly, I get a lot of resistance because many teams look at paraprofessional support, aids, one-to-ones, whatever they call them near you, uh, as essential only for students who require them to be kept safe, as opposed to being proactive um, in a way to to help a student like Tina develop those pro-social skills. And so you had been successful, mm-hmm. as you often are, in getting the team to see with the advice of an expert that, uh, in fact, she, she did require this. She didn't require it for the full day, but she needed somebody to help her during, during those unstructured times to, to facilitate social interactions. And Jen, can I talk yes, about real quickly how we got that? Okay. Yes. We asked for an ecological assessment, and that is an assessment whereby um, an an educator, it could be a board-certified behavior analyst, it could be a school psychologist, um, or someone else on the team, observes the student and compares the student to other students. And we, through that observation, you get to see what that student can do. That's fantastic. We have a celebration. You know, we don't have to work on that because the student can do X, Y, or Z. But more importantly, what can the student not do? What can the student not do that other students can? And it was through that observation at recess, at lunch, and in the specials, where we were able to show the data that Tina was not um, use, was was not able to be as socially competent as we would like her to be compared to her peers. And with that data, we developed IEP goals, and that's the anchor that you need in the IEP to um, so that the, the 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 paraprofessional could be the person who now facilitates those social skills during lunch, recess, and specials. So Julie, and then after you were successful in getting this for Tina, um, over time, the parents started to become concerned that the one-to-one person that had been agreed upon and put into the IEP, which is the Individualized Education Program, which is the document that um, parents and school teams develop under the law to um, outline a child's program for special education, that even though it was in the IEP and you'd gotten them to agree to it, they were highly concerned and had some good reason to be concerned that they didn't think it was really happening consistently. Uh, They weren't seeing any changes in her social skills. Minor things like, you know, parents do, you know, they had other children do drop off and pick up um, at various times in the school day. Uh, and they would see her in the in the lunchroom as they'd be dropping off something in the main office and she's by herself. Now, we're all human. There are times where a person might have to tend to something else or use the ladies room or whatever else if they are um, supporting a child. So they were trying very hard to give the benefit of the doubt. But 
they became more and more concerned. And between that and some other issues that were arising um, in her program, they then retained me, which, you know, Julie and I really do hope that we don't have to have parents go from an advocate to an attorney, but it does sometimes happen and it happened here. So I requested an IEP team meeting to put on the record the parents' concerns and see if we could address them collaboratively with the team. And we held the meeting. And here's what I want to share in terms of the facts. Um, We hold the IEP meeting. I'm there. The board's attorney is there. The team is there. The parents are there. And we were seated, meaning the parents and I, in the conference room where we were looking out, facing the window, basically, of the conference room, which overlooked um, the playground. And we were, we just, that's where we happened to be seating, sitting, excuse me. And I start, you know, uh, the meeting after the administrator asked me why the parents have asked for the meeting. And I put on, on the record, so to speak, look, we're here because the parents are very concerned. We please that you agree to the one-to-one for her in unstructured activities and to facilitate pro-social interactions. But we're very, very concerned that we don't necessarily think it's happening consistently. We're not getting data. We're not seeing changes in her performance or, or her progress. And as I'm saying this, Julie, <laughs> I can physically feel my clients getting agitated next to me. And you, you know, you, you and I have been doing this for decades. You, you mm-hmm. come to really understand people um, when you attend enough of these meetings. And I, I could just tell that they were getting upset. And I, and I wouldn't know if they thought I was not articulating their case properly or what was going on. And I always come armed with um, post-it notes <laughs> for a conversation with my clients. And um, so I handed a, a notepad over to the, the mother at, in a gesture like, can you let me know what's going on here. And the mother quickly writes me a note saying that Tina, um, she says, look out the window. Tina's the one by the tree. And so I look out the window and there's a big tree and there's a whole grouping of students on the playground. And all of the students are far to the right of the tree. The tree is to the left. And Tina is by herself under the tree, far from all of the other students. And, and I could see only one adult. Okay. And, um, I mean, Julie, if you Googled, you know, photo or image of social isolation, isolation, this, this would come up. It was just so obvious. And so I said, I wrote back, thank you for letting me know while I'm still talking. And I decided to give it a little time because, you know, again, people are human. I I, I don't know how long she, the parents have been observing this, but I just noticed it. So I took note of the time. The team then starts jumping in about how absolutely her one-to-one is with her at all times, that according to the IEP um, for the unstructured activities, that uh, they have lots of data that they'd be happy to share with us. And they go on essentially defending their program and defending their actions and, uh, you know, disagreeing with us that this is a problem. And I'm listening and I just watch as Tina is by this tree by herself without any adult coming over, trying to get her back in with the crowd. And she's just in her own world under this tree. And it was really sad to watch because I, I, you know, I can, as sad as it was for me to watch, I can imagine how upsetting it must have been for the parents. And they're sitting here literally having the conversation about this uh, with a lawyer. And it just was, it was it was difficult to not jump in earlier, but I gave it 10 minutes. I gave it 10 minutes of discussion. And finally, the board's attorney, who I happen to like quite a bit, started to notice that the parents were looking out the window. And I and I, I think he was sort of 
started to wonder what's going on as well. And I said, can I just interrupt whomever was talking at that point? I just need to interrupt you for a second. Um, You may have noticed that we seem a little distracted. I said, um, and the reason is we are here talking about whether there is an adult who's supposed to be in place per her IEP to intervene when Tina is not interacting with her peers to facilitate appropriate peer interactions during lunch and recess. And if you turn around, because they were all facing us, (laughs) their back was to the window. If you turn around, uh, and they all did, I said, that's Tina by the tree. And they all just sort of looked at each other. And I said, and we've been counting. It's been 10 minutes. Now, I don't know how long your recess is, but I have to imagine 10 minutes is a sizable chunk of a recess. So I have a question for you. Where's her (laughs) one-to-one? And it was, you know, I don't love doing gotchas to teams. I really don't. That's not how I see my role as a a parent advocate, but it was pretty telling. Sadly, Julie, the administrator in the meeting, her response to this was to pull the blinds down over the window as if, you know, la, 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 la. (laughs) La, 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 la. I don't see this. It's not happening. Exactly. And so, you know. At that point, the board's attorney asked to take a break, which was the right thing to do. And we left for a bit and came back in when he came and got me and said he'd had a chance to counsel his client. And we were able to push past it and get together a plan where data would be collected, et cetera. But that's what happened. Those are the facts of Tina and the tree. Well, and you know, you just can't make that up. Um, and, and, And back to your gotcha statement, no way do we ever want to play gotcha. But when something is handed to you in, in that way where you couldn't have planned it if you if you wanted to, right. you can't ignore that. No, you can't. And so those are the facts. And now it's, um, and let's talk about the law. Yes. So Julie, there's a number of ways in which the law is implicated here. And I think you and I would both agree that the most important is LRE. Mm-hmm. And um, we've talked about LRE a lot. (laughs) Least restrictive environment. That's right. So the least restrictive environment provision of the federal special education law, which is the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the least restrictive environment provision says that students with disabilities shall be educated to the maximum extent appropriate with their non-disabled peers, and that removal from the mainstream should really only happen after the district has attempted to supplement the program with additional resources and supplementary aids. Um, In English, what that means is that just because you have a disability doesn't mean that you should be segregated in in or from your public school and your your, um, uh, classmates. And the provision is very individualized. So the program always has to be appropriate to meet the needs of that child. Some children require very restrictive programming in order to receive an appropriate program and others do not. Uh, But at its core uh, with Tina, Tina was entitled to be and had every right to be in her mainstream public school with her non-disabled peers and to be benefiting from the interaction with them. Okay. That was you know, for parents of children with disabilities, they're always doing a, a weighing, you know, a balancing test mm-hmm. of how much is my child getting out of this part of their program? Is it worth it to have her or him pulled out for reading instruction if they come back to the classroom and they feel like they're, uh, they've missed out on something? You know, it's, it's this constant uh, balancing test on what is restrictive and what is not. And for them, 
they felt like, you know, Tina's academic skills were pretty darn good in and of themselves. They weren't so worried about that. They were worried that she needed in order to be successful in life to learn how to interact with people. And so the fact that during that time, the, the most natural times to interact with her, with her peers, um, she didn't have the supports that the IEP called for fundamentally cuts against her right to attend school in the least restrictive environment. And I will add that, um, you know, education is not just academics. We say that all the time. It's one of our favorite things to say. And, you know, not all of your day is in the academic classroom. So you've got the lunch, the recess, and the specials, which include PE and art and music and all those good things, right? And so if in those times, you're not, as other children are, have some meaningful uh, relationships and you're chatting it up or, or whatever we do socially, right? Then that, in those times, that those aspects of the day can be restrictive to that child. Um, and right. that this is the reason why many parents want to keep their children who have um, disabilities, and, 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 and in this case, Tina with autism, in her public school. But in order for her to um, be successful in school all across the board, the parents have the right, and do, as does Tina, to say, I also want to be successful socially with my peers. And, and that, that is why the IEP included a, 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 a paraprofessional to assist Tina and to facilitate those interactions. Right. And that leads to the next violation of the law, which is the IEP as written and agreed upon, and which serves as like a contract between a parent and a school district. That's what the courts have said. Um, that document was not being followed. And I, I need to just state that, uh, of course, I'm, you know, I'm trained as a lawyer to always have the, well, what if, what if, what if, right? What if that was the one day that the paraprofessional couldn't make recess, you know, and in fact, every other time they've been complying with the IEP. It's possible. Sure, that's possible. It's not likely. Um, and I'll tell you, not just because I, what are the chances that the one day that I'm there is the one day, you know, that they're not going to have the one to one there. Um, not likely, especially since that person was not participating in the IEP meeting. Um, but also the parents were already suspicious about this. They had already observed themselves um, some occasions where they felt that, you know, this was a time where if they had come by um, or they asked Tina questions about her day and and, you know, it's hard for parents because you don't want to be feeding your child information or um, leading them to give you certain answers. But, you know, when they'd ask, you know, is, is Mrs. Jones with you um, or how is Mrs. Jones at that time? If there was any kind of an issue, uh, Tina was reporting that she wasn't there. And so uh, this is a violation to not actually include the services and supports that were agreed upon in the IEP. It's, it's non-compliance with the IEP, and that in and of itself is a violation of the law. Jen, can I just really quickly say a word about, you know, if let's say a recess is 20 minutes long, right? Yeah. And maybe, you know, lots of parents or, or school teams I have heard say, well, we just want... We just want our child to go out and be at recess and do whatever he or she wants to do and blow off some steam. That's fine. That's fine. But I've worked with lots of teams where we say, okay, if recess is 20 minutes long, we're going to take 10 and do some social facilitation. And the other 10, 
let that child do whatever you'd like that child to do. But I also think it's important that when some, in the case of Tina and the tree, when she's just around the tree doing nothing, what does it also say to the other students? Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to add that because it's an element that perhaps is not against the law, but it is the spirit of of why we're doing this. Well, it flies in the face of of um, all that matters in terms of inclusion, right? And um, and I will say this as well. You know, we will say education is more than academics every podcast and probably more than once. And and it, it can't be said enough. And, and here's why. For a student who might have a learning disability, let's say, their educational program, their unique needs should be met. Their individualized program should be focusing and supporting them academically, okay? Um, because their core deficit is an academic one. So for that student, having the supports in place, let's say in the reading reading class or in the math class, that is where their unique needs will be met is in that environment. For Tina and for many like her, the, the recess is as important a place for support as reading class because her deficit, her core deficit is social. And we know the nature of schools is such that, and as it should be, that most of the time when instruction is being given academic instruction, students are not expected to be socializing, you know, especially as they get older. The expectation is you're going to be paying attention to the teacher and you're going to be focusing on the lesson and and you're not chatting with your peers. In fact, a lot of kids get into trouble for that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It is those unstructured activities like recess and lunch and um, less academic classes and electives where you want to have that opportunity to interact with your non-disabled peers. And so, um, you know, this is why it's really important for parents to always keep their eye on the prize of what is my child's core area of deficit? And is that what we're talking about when we develop the IEP? Or are we talking about only academics? If academics aren't your concern, I, you know, I urge parents to repeat at every IEP meeting, I'm not, that's not my area of concern. And it's not her area of disability. Her area of disability is a social one or, you know, an attention one or an emotional one, whatever various category your child might fall under. So another area of the law that is implicated by this fact pattern, Julie, Mm -hmm. is, um, the misrepresentation that appears to have happened here about whether, in fact, Tina was getting the services that her IEP called for. I, I'm going to say this delicately because it's I never want to call somebody a liar. I never like to think that people lie. And Julie and I care so much about making sure that we are not in this podcast or in our individual practices or in any of the projects that we share together. Um, blaming educators who work so hard every day to try to work with children with disabilities and villainize them. That's never our role. That's never our goal. Uh, That said, there are times where people are being dishonest In, in any field, in any profession, it's the reality, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there are there are people in any field who are going to be bad actors. And in this particular case, um, someone was not telling the parents the truth. You know, it was very, it became more clear over time. And um, the law, the IDA doesn't specifically say, there's no section that says school districts must tell parents the truth. However, there are many provisions that have references to misrepresentations by school districts having legal impact on timelines, on statutes of limitations, on decision-making that parents make that make it clear that Congress absolutely wanted school districts to be honest with parents and, um, and that that should be a two-way street as well. Okay, Jen, let's go for the verdict. 
the verdict in this case, Julie, is that, you know, it's hard to hide the truth. <laughs> you know, um, there's a phrase, the truth will out. And um, I look at my uh, practice and I always say to, to parents, sometimes parents will have information that they're not comfortable sharing with the school. And in most circumstances, it, very, very rare, I would feel otherwise. I say it's never a good idea to withhold information from, from the school, just as it's not a good idea for the school district to withhold information from you. And, you and know, in this, yeah, go ahead, Julie. I was going to say the other verdict. The other verdict is that this captures the fact that perhaps this team was not invested in Tina's IEP and perhaps doesn't didn't see the importance of facilitating these pro-social skills during the downtimes as had been previously agreed upon at an IEP meeting, right? And that's the part where it makes me sad because we can't force people to get it and to want to do this for the student. But somehow this has been marginalized and 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 perhaps the team just didn't think, ah, we don't need to do this for Tina all the time. Well, I, I hate to say it, but um, you and I have seen many times before when, when we quote unquote force a team to do something. Right. And I don't like that term as, you know, as if we're being, you know, aggressive, but when we advocate zealously and the administration decides I'm not going to fight this one. I'm just going to agree to it. Sometimes the team's not happy. Sometimes the team's very frustrated because they didn't think the child needed it and they're not really going to be invested in it. And there are ways to address that. Uh, but it is a, a legitimate concern. And we've got lots of good ideas on how we can avoid this in our rewind. So let's do the rewind. The rewind. Um, one of the things that could have been done here differently, Julie, to avoid this would be to set up some kind of a regular data collection um, reporting system for the family where the para, the one-to-one -one, is taking some data um, in some fashion. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, highly detailed, but so that the parents on a weekly basis or bi-weekly basis are getting uh, information on what's happening during that time so that they were assured um, and the, the person was being held accountable to report back. Right. Another one is that, you know, this is where I love to talk about parent training. It's one of my favorite things because it's such an underutilized related service under the IDEA. And parent training is where you can ask the school team to help you and train you to do the same things that the para is doing as it relates to that social facilitation so that everybody's on the same page. Because if you're going to just socially facilitate Tina at school, you don't want to then come home and say, well, we're never going to follow up on those same principles and, and try to apply them. So if you've asked the team for parent training on, gee, how are you doing this? teach me because I want to be doing it in the same way. Now you're building that relationship with the team and you're all sort of, um, you're working together toward the same goal. And it's one more piece of glue that can hold that team together. That's a great suggestion, Julie. And, and that's 
for some students, really great because what you can do is if you find out the language, the um, little tips and reminders that the person is doing in school that are effective, you can tell your um, your child's you know sports coaches outside of school about it. You you can utilize it in you know at the playground in town or wherever you you might be involved in a social interaction with your child and other students. Uh, you can tell your religious instructors about it for you know Sunday school or Saturday school, whatever. Um, you may be participating in so that it can try to, you can try to generalize that skill across the, all domains, which is what we eventually want for Tina and for all students. And uh, go ahead, Julie. And you can discuss your parent training and how that's going at your team meetings, your regularly scheduled team meetings. It might be once a month. It might be once every six weeks, whatever you and your team decide. But this is where you can come together with the key players in the team, in this case around the social facilitation, and say, hey, how's it going? What's the data telling us? What's her progress? Just one... You were reading my mind okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> because team meetings, and we're not talking about IEP meetings. Those happen no. at least annually. They sometimes happen more, more than annually, but at least once a year. We very strongly encourage families to ask that a regularly scheduled team meeting between the parents and the key members of the team be put into the child's IEP. It can be monthly. It can be every six weeks. Some districts will say, uh, you know, every six weeks, except in a in a month where we are also having an IEP meeting. Um, there are ways you can write it up, but I assure you, you're going to find out so much sooner about any problems that exist in your child's program or about any miscommunications that are happening between you and your, your team. Uh, I assure you, if they had been having regularly scheduled meetings, the parents probably would have picked up on it you know, a couple months in about whether or not this para was actually there because they would just in conversation, you'll you'll be hearing something where you can ask a follow up question. Oh, really? So, what what did Mrs. Jones do when that happened? You know, and, and you, they probably would have known earlier. It is such an important way because nothing is worse than sitting at the end of the school year in May or June around an IEP table and finding out for the first time that all year a certain thing has been going on that you would have liked to have known in September. You know, another thing, Jen, is there could be a communication system set up between the school and um, the parents at home, whereby um, Tina gets to report to her parents, gee, how did something go at school today as it relates to social facilitation? Maybe it's something that happened at lunch. Maybe it's something that happened at recess. So that Tina is now a part of this process. Hey, hey, you know, parents, let me come home and tell you something really great that happened to, to me today. Um, and, and one more thing, how about regularly scheduled observations by somebody on the team, it could even be an outside consultant, who comes in and regularly observes Tina um, to see how she's doing in those settings. So hopefully these great are suggestion. all good ideas um, that can help school teams and parents avoid situations from happening like Tina and the tree. Should we close the file, Jen? Yes, I think we should. Closing the file on Tina and the tree. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio.
Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac Director of Community Programming. File closed. <laughs>